Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 55 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name is Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas for how to raise more money, enjoy their job and make a bigger difference, especially during the pandemic. And in today's episode, we're looking at things you can do to improve your charity's approach to receiving income through gifts in people's wills. Dr. Claire Routley is one of the UK's experts on legacy fundraising, and together we recently created a new learning bundle for the Bright Spot Members Club. The course is called Five Keys to Growing Legacy Fundraising Income. In today's episode, which is an excerpt from that course, we explore the first two fundamentals of any successful legacy fundraising strategy. I guess my very first point is this is going to take some effort for a fundraiser who normally might be focusing their energy on corporate fundraising or events or individual giving, just to help us tune into the opportunity and potentially the opportunity that is being missed by many charities. Could you help us care and and understand why it's worth bothering to do some of this activity? Yes, well, I, I would imagine lots of people have seen the statistics or are vaguely aware that uh, legacy giving is predicted to grow over the next few decades but maybe not everybody is aware of the you know the scale of the transformation we're likely to see so you know that's definitely worth um, having on your radar so you know if you weren't aware we're likely over the next few decades to see the biggest transfer of wealth ever between generations And, you know, because people are lovely and kind and generous, you know, many of those people will be thinking about, actually, as well as supporting the people I love, I want to support the the charities that I really care about. So predictions at the moment suggest that the the legacy market is likely to double in size by 2045, which is uh, pretty amazing. And down to the generosity of so many kind people. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I guess a key, key thing for us to be aware of is you might get some legacies without doing much activity, mm-hmm. but to really take um, embrace this opportunity of this growing market, there's a certain set of things that maximise the chances that people who care about our cause will think of us when mm-hmm. they next go to their solicitor, potentially with this in mind. Yes. Yeah. So um there's five key things that we were going to discuss today. I suppose my sort of five top tips uh, for any organisation that is wanting to get started in a slightly more serious way with the legacy fundraising. Um, so number one was developing the organisation's legacy messaging you know, explaining to people why they should care about this. Uh, number two is thinking about, OK, well, what am I already doing? How am I already communicating with uh, our supporters and integrating the legacy message within that. Uh, Number three is quite similar in a way, but thinking particularly about um, your colleagues. So actually they're a a brilliant channel for getting messages out, again, to people that really care about your organisation. So how do you bring your colleagues on board? Number five, sorry, number five, number four, (laughs) um, is, okay, you know, I've done the the job of uh, integrating into those messages that I already have going out. Uh, Where's my next step? So how do I go about developing some more proactive approaches, which might focus very specifically on legacies, for example. Uh, And then number five is thinking about how you manage the legacies that you then start to receive into your organisation 
in order to get you know the best value for your organization but you know very importantly really delivering on those wishes of those people that left that gift in the first place fabulous so uh, five keys that we could quite deliberately focus some energy and some problem solving mm-hmm. in and if we're going to jump into the first one to do with developing your messaging around legacies what are some of the key tips for how to get that right Oh, I think probably my first key tip would be to really understand your donors. You know, what is fundamentally floating their boat about your organisation? And really, what's that big long term vision that they are buying into? Because really, research tells us that's what people care about when they're thinking in the legacy space. You know, they're not necessarily as concerned with the nitty gritty of the day to day, you know, they want to to buy into this vision that you both share. Um, You can also understand how their lives and their life history connect in with your organisation. Because again, we know that legacy giving is often motivated by people sort of looking back over their lives. You know, and that's good to know, isn't it? Just generally, but actually, obviously, how that happens is different for every organization so you really want to understand okay you know, we've got this these big picture answers from academic research but how does that relate to my particular organization and I don't think in order to do that that you can beat <laughs> sounds so obvious but you know going out and interviewing donors about their their lives their passions um, you know what they really care about from your organization so just to give you a little example um, and I love all of my clients. It's uh, it's hard to say I've got a favourite, but I do have a very soft spot for um, an organisation I did some work with last year called the Telekin Railway, because I am a bit of a train nerd. <laughs> and the Telekin Railway is uh, in sort of northwest Wales, and it was the very first um, railway to be taken over by a really sort of passionate army of, uh, of volunteers when otherwise it would have closed. So it's amazing. You've got these people that... Um, their families, you know, three generations of people have volunteered on the railway um, and they've had uh, railway marriages and railway babies who were then brought up on the railway. You know, it's uh, it's a pretty amazing place. And uh, interviewing, you know, their, their key stakeholders was just, it was fabulous. And um, the one thing that really kind of sticks in my mind was the word um, magic that people used about this place. Because it is in just the most beautiful countryside you know, the railway itself, it's a narrow gauge railway. So it's really sort of, um, if you can call a railway such a thing, really cute and small. <laughs> um, going through this really beautiful um, landscape around the side of a mountain. Um, and, you know, one person, for example, was talking about, but the thing that really st- struck her when she first came was the fact that the, the door handles were on the little carriages were really, really shiny. And so someone obviously loved this place enough to focus you know even in the midst of this you know beautiful overall situation they really cared enough to focus on those little tiny details um and somebody else just talked about um going up to a a reservoir which is up near where the the train runs to and you know just looking back past the mountain and it just feeling that word again magical and so there was definitely there was something about magic and I spent you know being the uh, over academic analytical type that I am, I spent a long time trying to unpick in my head about, you know, how do I kind of capture this, this magic in the perfect way that will work for everybody? 
And then it sort of really occurred to me that actually the magic is different for every different person. So they all have this sense of magic. But like I said, for one person, it's the shiny uh, door handles. <laughs> and for somebody else, it's the view out over the, the reservoir. But actually, if we talked when we were talking about legacies in the space of you know, magical memories and making sure that you know, future generations could create these magical memories, then people would sort of, I suppose, superimpose their own personal little bit of magic <laughs> that they felt when they visited the railway. And so, you know, I never, we never would have got to that lovely place about talking about the magic of the railway, you know, if we, if we hadn't sat down with people um, and really tried to, to drill into, you know, their particular connection to, to that very special place. Mm, what a wonderful example. And there's no way one can achieve that insight as to, to mm-hmm. why people care about a particular course without you you might think you can from behind your desk or by looking on the internet or by researching in some other way, but there really is no substitute for these real conversations with these kinds of people who care about your cause, not only about why they call what why, but also the language with which they express it is likely to be different uh, yeah. if if you are not that person. So that's um, a, a brilliant tip to motivate us to get out and have those conversations and find those stories mm. and find the particular insights that might be key central to your messaging mm-hmm. any other advice to help us get that messaging right for if we're creating that proposition for a legacy i think once you've actually sort of gone out and, and done those uh, those interviews um the the classic process of developing a case for support off the back of those interviews is, is a really sort of good discipline to go through um and just like in any other area of fundraising, I think you having that case is really useful because it um, it makes sure that your you know messaging is is aligned, and very practically as well. You know, having that case put together really helps you then to um, on a very practical level. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time that you have an opportunity to communicate about legacies. You know, you can you can use that that case as the basis for all the other messaging that you put out. So um, it's a real time saver, <laughs> as well as, you know, making sure that, as we said, you know, I suppose slightly more strategically, that you're aligned, that you're, you know, using the, the language that your donors are using. And I think, um, you know, when I when I develop these sort of case for support documents, what I'll commonly do is start from, um, you know, the full version. I'll write down everything <laughs> that could possibly go into it. And it might be, end up being you know four or five pages of a4 and then a discipline i find really helpful is then to boil it down and boil it down and boil it down so i'll start with the full version and, and then i'll say right i have to be able to express this in a single page i then have to be able to express it in a single paragraph i have to be able to express it in a sentence um and that's for me that's really really good discipline from going you know all of the lovely data from all of the lovely interviews down to my sort of concise in inverted commas <laughs> four or five page document right down to that sort of what's that core sentence um you know to use a bit of fundraising jargon that course of legacy proposition ultimately wonderful so by going through this process that's how you tend to arrive at that really pithy short sharp Mm -hmm. concept and i can totally see that it's hard work to get there i don't take that lightly but i can absolutely see that if we were willing to do the work that that could work for any other charity um, in working out, actually, the proposition is this, not that, which we would have yes. <laughs> guessed at 
you know, which sounds like every other charity. But secondly, yeah. I, I see just how practical a document this is mm-hmm. and what a time-saving document it is because later on in this mini course, when you're going to tell us about the importance of integrating, if you've already got, you know, all these different length versions, it's so much easier for you to, at short notice, take advantage of you know, a PS at the bottom of some yes. other mailing or a paragraph within a bro- uh, you know, an annual report or whatever. If we've done the work to create the case for support in the first place, we're so much more likely to make use of those other opportunities um, in a time-efficient way when they appear. Yeah, absolutely. And when I was in my last sort of in-house job, I was, you know, so thankful that I'd done that piece of work right at the beginning. And as you say, absolutely, you know, people will come to you with, you know, oh, gosh, we've got some space here and you've got about 10 minutes to fill it. <laughs> and you've got that that copy ready to go, really. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Just before we move on, any last uh, tips uh, that, or, or pitfalls you think people should be aware of uh, that make them more likely to succeed in uh, creating this kind of a proposition? I think I've just started to to mention already, you know, just a couple of points about, um, you know, be aware of of what we know from the wider research as well. So, you know, as I said, um, for example, the the donors are interested in the sort of big picture and the big vision. Um, What research also tells us is um, stay away from legal language. I think that's a really good point. Um, it's very easy. I know in our world, especially in this lovely sort of caring, sharing world of fundraising, I think often if people are getting started, you think, okay, I'm going to go to the next, you know, big charity that I know, I'm going to take a chunk of their text and almost, you know, exactly, almost sort of change the name over and, and I'm done. Um, and I think sometimes, um, let's say, less effective messaging then just starts to kind of cycle around the sector. Using legal terminology actually puts people off leaving legacies so in one experiment for example um using the word bequest rather than the word gift in a will halved people's interest but it's so easy for you know these little sort of legal terms for example to um you know sneak their way into copy so um i mean i would suggest generally having a, having a look at what research tells us about um good legacy language and you know just sense checking what you've pulled together perhaps from these interviews with again what the, what the broader research tells us yes and our viewer is probably thinking well that's kind of obvious clear we would definitely not do that but i i would urge people to be respectful of just how pernicious these forces can mm. be within an organization with no malintent no no for for well, any kind of jargon frankly medical jargon or you know some other kind of jargon to 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 do with the 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 management of of mm. cancer or refugees or any jargon can sneak in but I, I think it's especially tricky in this area because you probably do need to be spending a little time uh liaising with lawyers and executors of wills and people and in that industry there is this kind of a language which is the norm and expected and even needed so sort of the act of changing hats between talking yes. to those people and talking to the person who might be considering a gift in their will, as long as it was positioned right, that's not necessarily easier. So we need to be on our guard, don't we? Definitely. I think that's a really um, great way to explain it. And uh, and actually, uh, Professor Russell James that carried out some of this research talks about, well, just um, imagine it's a conversation with your grandmother. 
you know, you wouldn't go to your grandmother and say, grandmother, would you please leave me a residuary legacy? <laughs> so, you know, we shouldn't talk to, to donors in that way, which I think is a really nice way to help cut through some of that jargon. Fantastic. Just before we move on, any last uh, idea that can help at this stage? Ooh, um, I think think about the, the different pieces of communication ultimately you will need. And again, if you're just getting started, you don't need necessarily particularly shiny, beautifully designed versions of all these things. But um, do consider, you know, whether you might need a, a sort of a legacy brochure, which I suppose is the sort of the fullest expression of your case for support. Um, other organisations have used things like bookmarks. So, for example, if you've got charity shops, you might want to um, include bookmarks, um, again, as a way of just sort of introducing the legacy message to people, you know, web content, social media content. So it can be helpful, you know, once you've kind of got that core message to think about where is it then going to sort of filter down and what, what are the most useful pieces of collateral for your particular organisation? Hey, it's Rob. And I just want to jump in really quickly because quite a few listeners have been in touch recently as they're making plans to allocate budgets to support their fundraising from April. And they've been asking about the various training options we've got at Brightspot. And while not every charity is able to invest in our full major gifts or corporate mastery programme, or indeed our in-house masterclass for their team, many are able to find the more modest budget for our Brightspot Members Club. As I mentioned at the beginning, this episode is a short excerpt from the full Legacies course with Claire. And this is one of more than 40 learning bundles available in the club on a broad range of fundraising topics on everything from individual giving and corporate to major donor fundraising and leadership. Now, as well as the community and all the courses you can access whenever you like, Every single week we do a live one hour masterclass or problem solving session with experts like Claire to help you put in place the strategies from the courses. If you're at all curious about how our training club will help you or your team keep learning and stay inspired in 2021, you can find out more at brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. For now though, back to the Legacies content as I asked Claire about the second key to improving legacy income. So first idea, we need to, to get the, that messaging right and the idea of creating that case for support and the different versions of it and the assets. The next one I think you mentioned, Claire, is to do with how we integrate those ideas into the charity's other communications. What's your advice about how we do that? I suppose the um, you know the real classic legacy strategy <laughs> is um, drip drip marketing. So the idea that you're getting the message out to people little and often, um, and there's a couple of benefits actually to that classic approach. I suppose the more you sort of drip drip that message, the more you make it feel like it's uh, a normal way of supporting the organisation. You know, it's not some sort of weird, strange, great big ask that sits over here that's just for, you know, celebrities or hugely rich people. <laughs> so it just makes it seem like a normal way of supporting the organisation. And then again, I'm going to steal, I'm going to steal a lot from Professor Russell James because he's marvellous. But he talks about um, we need to make it feel like people like me do things like this. So we want to make it feel like, you know, if you're a supporter of the organisation, this is a normal thing to at least think about. Um, and as I said, you know, drip dripping that message out on a regular basis can really help with that. Um, the other sort of benefit, I suppose, of the you know that sort of drip drip approach is 
we spend as human beings spend a lot of our time um completely in denial about anything vaguely to do with with death and dying you know it's not never going to happen to us um and there's only sort of various points in our lives that those thoughts are able to break through and that we actually you know take any sort of proactive action to plan so again the idea of having you know drip drip messaging that that comes out regularly is that it's more likely then that a supporter will see it at a time that's relevant for them as opposed to you know if you only ever do one legacy mailing a year and that's the sum total of our activity you know a lot of the people that it gets in front of it's just going to seem completely relevant at that particular point in time so um so there's lots of benefits to the drip drip in the message um, and of course especially for people who are just getting started if we're just uh, you know getting that message out through the um, our existing channels, you know, our newsletter, our website, our social media, all of those good places. And that's obviously a, a cost and resource efficient way of, of communicating the legacy message. In fact, you know, there's a lot of things that we can do that um, won't actually sort of cost any money here. Um, so interestingly, actually, my last organisation, just to, to give you an example, which is that I used to work for the Bible Society, um, and my colleagues were actually really brilliant at sort of coming up with ideas around you know, places that they could integrate the message, which was lovely. Um, so we had things like um, the, the organization's headed paper had a lovely little sort of legacy message just on the on the side. Um, uh, the lady who worked in the post room actually came up, she was like, have you ever thought about using the, you know, when you, um, you're Frank, you're in Frankie machine and you can have a little sort of logo or something. She was like, have you ever thought about using that for a legacy message? We're like, no. <laughs> brilliant. Um, maybe more traditionally tick boxes on response forms to to appeals um, and I also had and I'm straying into sort of encouraging my colleagues here but I had a brilliant colleague called um, Robert who was absolutely wonderful I think he was better than me at uh, you know sort of one-to-one -one legacy communication uh, and he did a lot of work with um, mid-value donors we did a lot of work on the phone checking in with people you know having some really lovely conversations and he just sort of developed the habit of um, every conversation that he would have pretty much he would towards the end he'd say did you know you know I've just been looking at our records and you've actually been supporting us for 15 years which is pretty amazing you know did you know there's a way actually you can carry that on to the future and over about six months, I think just by adding that little question into his um, telephone calls, he must have identified conservatively, I'd say, probably about a million pounds of um, legacy income. You know, some of that was gifts that people had already put into wills. But I mean, great, if we know about that, we can make sure that we, uh, we look after those people in the right way. So just finding those little opportunities to include the legacy message in things that you're already doing. Um, as in Robert's example, can actually reap, I mean, amazing rewards. Yes, it's, it clearly makes such a difference, doesn't it? If we if we can mm. find a way to be consistent in this, while at the same time pursuing the various other communication and fundraising objectives we've got to do week on week or month on month, yeah. the, the consistency is, is clearly the key. And it's, it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen if a charity makes a decision that this is really worth it to our cause and our ability to serve so from now on this is part of how we communicate and it's it's the norm and and, and then yeah. on top of that you can get creative in some of the ways that you said and and find really interesting ways to keep that drip going mm -hmm. i think you mentioned last time you and i spoke claire a, a lovely example of an organization 
whose legacy income had been broadly flat. And then uh, some years later, there was a clear upsurge. And that absolutely correlated and, and was because of this extra dis- decision to be consistent. Could you, yeah. I don't know if it's appropriate to mention the name of the organisation, but could you just give me the top line example that might just help us, uh, if we're going to go and talk to our colleagues, decide that this is worth the effort? Yeah, and I think actually it's probably okay to mention the name because I um uh, essentially, I was carrying out an audit for uh, another client whose name I won't mention, <laughs> um, and looking at what you know some other charities in a similar space had been doing. Um, and one example that I pulled out was the Royal British Legion, um, and I and I mentioned their name because actually a lot of the information that then sort of went in the audit came from well, all the information came from some publicly publicly available sources. So I think we're okay to sort of uh, talk about them. But yes, it was it was really interesting. If you look at their um, legacy income over time, I mean, it was broadly flat. So we were looking at you know, 2007 to 2013 originally, and you know there was pretty much flat income. But then 2014, 15, 16, 17, um, 18, you know they've grown consistently over time, um, and so. Often, you know, when I'm doing these audits, it's it's really useful to to look at, you know, who is growing the most and then try and dig in to find out, you know, what they're, as you say, in a public space, are they saying about their their approach? And um, really interestingly, the Legion has had this real sort of long term focus on recruiting new donors, but recruiting people who ultimately would be likely to become legacy supporters and very, very importantly, you know, stewarding those people effectively through to, to legacy gifts. Um, so I've got a little sort of quote that I added into this audit from uh, their assistant director of fundraising, Guy Upward, um, who talks about, uh, he says, I always look at the return on investment when reviewing new supporters who are generated from cold. Now, I obviously need to look at these figures too. And he says, because nearly £14 million in incremental sales, in inverted commas, uh, is such in such a short period is not too bad, is it? You know, just by making sure, and you know, this is not purely legacy fundraising, this is making sure that, um, you know, all of the the people that you bring into organisations have, uh, you know, a really brilliant supporter experience, such as they, you know, they're confident in the organisation, you know, see it as a a really good, effective steward of monies. You know, ultimately that's really, it's not just, you know, having a fancy legacy ask. is going to do that you know it's looking after people really well so that they see the organization as a deserving recipient and it was just really interesting to see somebody who'd been in post I think he'd been in post for about 13 years and just had had that real sort of consistent approach to um, stewarding supporters and, and growing legacy income and you can see that that's really uh, um, you know worked well for them. Yeah thank you for sharing the example and w- when we look at it like that it, it's clearly so valuable but I also Mm. like what you were saying there fundamental to everything I think you teach and that you do with your clients is is helping them not see normal fundraising and legacy fundraising (laughs) as a separate now now we've got to improve legacy yeah doing this well is fundamental to us caring about the experience of our supporters Mm. the experience of people who care about our cause it is about great stewardship and it is about giving them the various opportunities that that kind of person might want to support with. Yeah. For some, it's through their company, and, and it, for some, it's through leaving a gift in their will, and for some of them, it's both. 
So it's this holistic approach, actually, that is, um, I think it really helps me also see that it's not a matter of putting loads of effort into this better legacy stuff now, and we might be rewarded in 11 years' time. Seems mm. to me that you see uh, rewards from the very start when charities get better at realising that gifts and wills is a, a thing to be conscious of. Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's some really um, helpful data out there, because I think, again, perhaps one of the worries that organisations have is I don't want to promote legacies because it's going to cannibalise current giving or lifetime giving. You know, people will think I've done my legacy and I'm done. And actually, the, the data suggests the, the very opposite. So another of Professor Russell James's brilliant studies <laughs> actually shows that, um, you know, if you look at somebody's giving up until the point of uh, writing a charity into their will and then look at their giving going forwards actually you know just after someone has written a charity into their will their giving um, can increase quite dramatically and I guess it is what they're doing there is maybe making that vote of confidence in the organization you know that I really care about you I care about you enough to put you into my will but that also means that I'm going to support you in the future so actually rather than you know complete opposite in a way you know rather than cannibalizing your lifetime giving someone making that additional commitment is actually likely to be helpful for your organization that is so interesting isn't it and it really does fly in the face of some of the arguments that might be put up internally that there isn't space to to Mm. promote legacies today because what you know that might affect our short-term income it it really uh, helps us and it is also consistent with the w- work of Professor Robert Cialdini mm. about the laws of commitment and consistency yeah, yeah. that uh, you know in lots of areas of life if if we're encouraged to take a small step that is that, that we like and is in our interest mm. willingly uh, that actually can then lead or usually does lead to um, greater willingness to do more Claire, thank you so much for sharing all these ideas. I look forward to uh, inviting you back to do a a live problem-solving session for the Members Club again soon. But for now, Dr Claire Routley, thank you so much for sharing your ideas on legacy fundraising. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, I hope you found Claire's ideas helpful. As always, I'll put a brief summary and a full transcript of the conversation in the episode notes which you can find in the blog and podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, do remember to subscribe to the podcast today, as we've got lots more great episodes coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to get in touch or share the episode, we would love to hear from you. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Claire is at Clary Jane R and I am at Woods underscore Rob. And if you're a corporate partnerships or a major donor or a trust fundraiser and you need to boost your momentum and your results, do check out our Corporate Mastery and Major Gifts Mastery programs as we've just recently launched dates for the next programs starting in April 2021. And at the time of recording, I just completed doing day five of the current programs and I can tell you I'm more excited than ever by the results that the fundraisers on the current programs are achieving in spite of the pandemic. To find out more or to get in touch, do head on over to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services and click on either the Corporate Mastery or the Major Gifts Mastery page. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. Until the next time, good luck with all your efforts to grow your fundraising results and make a positive difference. Mm -hmm.